So do we handle the word of God rightly? Do we handle it well? I ask because there are times, maybe many times, when God's word is mishandled. Sometimes it's by the unscrupulous for personal gain. Often, though, it's mishandled by well-meaning, sincere folk, such as a church. I'll give you an example. Have you heard of the snake-handling church? Some of you may. One of their core doctrines is based on a single verse, actually just half a verse. Mark chapter 16, verse 8 declares that believers will be able to pick up snakes and not be harmed. So in these churches, they have a box with one or two, maybe more, poisonous snakes sitting at the front with a lid on, and when the anointing comes on an individual, they are encouraged to come up to the front and and pick up the snake. Why, may you ask? Well, uh, they will say that it intensifies the worship and is a sign to non-believers of God's protection. So you've got an example there of a snake-handling evangelist. Uh, Can you see the look on the tambourine player's face? I don't know if you can make it out. She is just staring, waiting for something to happen. You may notice that there's a chap at the back too, on the back uh, left, who's got a snake as well. So there's a couple of people that are feeling the anointing of the Lord there. Not long ago, uh, a snake-handling evangelist by the name of Reverend Brown was killed by one of his own rattlesnakes in the middle of the sermon. He continued to preach but soon collapsed on stage. The congregation gathered around praying and trying to call him with an electric fan, but Reverend Brown was dead within minutes. Now, Reverend Brown had survived 22 previous snake bites, but now sadly left behind five orphaned children. Uh, His wife had died from a snake bite during a revival service about three years earlier. One pastor who was on stage that night when speaking with reporters said he didn't think this would phase church members, that they weren't going to change their practices. He said, I think they'll be a lot more careful about handling snakes. I think they'll wait until they're very sure of their anointing. He then added, you know, a lot of people don't understand us. We're just normal people who believe God's word. So, whether well-meaning like the Reverend Brown, or unscrupulous, mishandling God's word can be disastrous. So today, we're going to see some people coming to Jesus who also mishandle God's word, and they do it time and time again. We're going to see Jesus' somewhat angry response, and along the way, we're going to learn how we can handle God's word better and safely. So we can be people that are described in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 where Paul says to Timothy and to us, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman or workwoman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So we're going to learn how to correctly handle the word of truth and we'll do that by diving in in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Not a very dramatic start, really, is it, this morning? We've been used to Jesus feeding 5,000 or walking on the water. Uh, We're not going to be seeing any demons exercised or uh, healing. It's all about washing hands. 
Seems a bit trivial at first glance, doesn't it? But Mark helpfully adds some explanation. And as he does, he, he shows us that as he was writing Mark, he was really looking at a Gentile audience. You don't need to explain Jewish customs to a Jewish audience. Matthew was very much written to a Jew, Jewish Christians, where we can see here that Mark had Gentiles, people like us in mind, when he was writing his gospel. So in verse 3, and you'll notice that it's in brackets, in verse 3 Mark writes, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So this makes it very clear that we're not talking about a hygiene issue. I mean, it's from hygiene reasons, it's a good idea to wash your hands before eating. But this is not the issue at all. It's a ceremonial issue, an issue of spiritual cleanliness. Again, it all seems a bit of a storm in a teacup. Until we get to question or until we get to the question in verse five. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now we need to understand something of the tradition of elders. What were the disciples not doing? Well, if we go back 1,500 years or so before Jesus, back to Moses' day, then he was given the law, the Torah, on Mount Sinai. And this law and the background make up the first five books of our Bible. But in many places, the law is light on detail. So in the Ten Commandments, uh, people are not to work on the Sabbath. But then people started asking, well, what, what's work? If your donkey falls into a ditch and you have to pull him out... Is that work? Yes or no? Uh, what about walking? Is that work? And if it is, how far can I get away with? You know, and There were all these questions about the detail of the law. And so the religious leaders developed guidelines to fill in the gaps. And on one level, this oral law, the tradition of the elders, was good and useful. They acted as guidelines to help worship, and so the people could live lives honouring God. When working well, the oral laws gave order and rhythm and cultural richness to living out God's word. And so out of a sincere, well-meaning desire to do the right thing, an extensive oral law, a tradition of elders had developed, and it was all full of do's and don'ts, shoulds and should nots. Unfortunately, by Jesus' day, this tradition of the elders had taken a life of its own. It had ballooned out and got out of hand and frankly was more of a burden than a help. And this ceremonial hand washing is a good example. The Bible says only Aaron and the priests need to wash their hands before serving in the temple. And that was that section from Exodus 30 that um, Paul read. It was only for the priests before they offered sacrifices. But by Jesus' day, the religious leaders had created a whole lot of traditions of oral laws stating when and where people should wash. You know, not just before going to the temple, but just when doing domestic chores. And this is what the disciples weren't doing, following an oral tradition. And the Pharisees saw this and they seized upon it as an opportunity to undermine and trap Jesus. Well, how? Well, their 
on the face of it, simple question was laced with malice. Why don't your disciples follow the customs? And this is exactly the same tactic that the Pharisees had used before. In Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees had asked why Jesus' disciples were allowed to pluck grain from a ripe grain field as they walked past. Uh, So it was a Sabbath. They were going from one place to another. There was a standing grain that was ready to be harvested and the disciples just ran their hands through it and had a snack. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to Jesus, if you were a real rabbi, if you knew what you were doing, you would be teaching your disciples to keep the Sabbath. Remember, even back then in Mark 2, that was a oral law. Okay, The tradition had grown up that even plucking grain was harvesting and work and you couldn't do it. So this is the second time that the Pharisees have a go at Jesus because his disciples are not following a tradition. Jesus, you call yourself a teacher? Why can't you teach your disciples to be ceremonially clean? This was a personal attack and it was undermining Jesus' authority and it was a trap. So, how does Jesus respond? Will he take the bait? Will he fall into their trap? Well, Jesus surprises us and I'm sure the Pharisees by not answering the question directly but straight out declaring them hypocrites. Hypocrites that even God condemns. And he does this by quoting from Isaiah 29 verse 13. And this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, your hearts are far from God. Your teachings are mere rules made up by men. And Jesus continues the attack. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Can you see how the Pharisees have been mishandling the word of God? They have taken their words and put them on par. So you have all these traditions and practices and customs and you have the word of God and they were lifting up their words and their customs to be on par with the word of God. In fact, Jesus said they had let go the commands and that their traditions were over the word of God. So this is a way that they were mishandling the word of God and it's something that we need to watch for. And Jesus doesn't leave his attack there. He presses in with a case study that exposes how badly the Pharisees are mishandling God's word. From scripture, Jesus reminds the Pharisees of the responsibilities of adult children to their older parents. This responsibility is so important that God expresses it in the law in the positive, honour your mother and father, and in the negative, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Honour your mother and father, don't dishonour them. He repeats it twice. You see both of those laws in Exodus and then God repeats them again in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So this is a really important principle. And amazingly, the Pharisees had developed an oral law, a tradition of the elders, that in some circumstances meant that this law was trumped or circumvented. And how? Well, in those days there was also traditions around gift-giving called Corbin. 
And so what happened is, is in the Old Testament, there's some references that if you want to vow and give your gift to God, you make sure you follow through. And so there was all these oral laws that were developed by the Pharisees to say, remember, and giving a gift to God, setting aside something is a very good thing. And they, and they called it Corbin, and they had all these oral laws. So this is the sort of situation that Jesus is thinking of. You might find a sort of a young man with a growing family, has some money and a spare, and decides, right, I'm going to give that to the church. Might be the equivalent in our days of, say, ten dollars or $15,000. Very generous. So that's his plan. It's Corbin. He's vowed to take it. Then what happens is circumstances change for some reason. Maybe his parents become ill or, or he suffers a financial setback or something changes and the parents suddenly need that help. They need the benefit of that money. Now, what do you do? Well, the Pharisees had all these laws saying, no, that's committed. <laughs> that's going to God. You cannot take that money and use it to bless your parents. Sorry, that's tough. And this is what Jesus is exposing here as completely wrong. The word of God is clear upon clear upon clear that you honour your mother and father first. And that circumstances change, that gift you dedicated to the church, well, you, you, you rededicate it to your parents. Because that's the law, and all the laws about Corbin, about gift giving, were underneath. And this is Jesus' criticism here of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus is making it very clear. He says in verse 13, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. So it wasn't just the Sabbath, and it wasn't just Corbin and gift giving. There were all sorts of areas where the Pharisees had developed all these rules and regulations, and they were putting them above God's word. And so, before we look at the implications for us, I want to briefly look at why Jesus answered so abruptly. At first glance, his response seems harsh and disproportionate, doesn't it? They ask a seemingly innocent question, and Jesus says, you hypocrites, and lays right into them. And why that's such a quite an emotional response by Jesus? And I think we need to go to Luke 11, and verse 46. I think this opens the door to us to understand why Jesus so was so harsh with the Pharisees. Similar context in that he's confronted by some religious leaders and he's responding. Luke eleven forty six. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. If we go back to the last chapter, remember Jesus, he came across the crowd in the wilderness. And, and what happened when he saw them? His heart was filled with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without shepherds. And so his heart was for those people that were really struggling. And yet here are the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law who were supposed to be shepherds. And they were just awful at it. So you can imagine someone in Israel who's just feeling, I feel guilty, I, need, you know, I just want to get right with God. And they go to a Pharisee. Or well, they're struggling with some issue and they go to a teacher of the law. And you know what happened? That Pharisee or the teacher of the law would say, this is what you're doing wrong and you need to do these ten things better. And so they would walk away worse off than before. 
And that's what Jesus is concerned about. Here are these people that should have been the shepherds to the flock. And all they were doing when they came for help was to add law upon law, rule upon rule. So whatever spiritual trouble you were having, you were worse because you were just given a lots of do's and don'ts. And I think that's why Jesus is so harsh with the Pharisees and why he spends so much time exposing them for being the, sh- the bad shepherds that they are. Anyway, this brings us to the implications for us. How are we to handle God's word rightly? Well, with the snake handling, <laughs> make sure that you don't take one verse out of context. I mean, there have been all sorts of misguided folk through the years who have taken one verse or one passage out of context and made it into a major doctrine. Uh, one of them is speaking in tongues, isn't it? You know, There are some folk that say, unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. Well, it actually doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, to be honest. But that's, you know what I mean? They take one thing and they just make it a major doctrine. So that's, that's one warning for us. We, that's how you can mishandle the word of God. But the other thing, and this is what we're really focusing on today, is those guidelines, those preferences, those way that we do church, oral traditions, must not be put on par with God's word. Yes, it is good and right that we have these guidelines. And they encourage us and give us guidelines about how we worship and how we grow in our faith and how we can share our faith or witness But these guidelines should never trump God's word. The Bible alone is our authority. Everything else comes underneath. Let me give you an example from my last church in Auckland. Now, when I joined the church, was called to that church, I I, I noticed that, uh, rather obviously, that the service, the single service, started at 9.30. Now, most churches in New Zealand... When you have a single service in the morning, it's a 10 o'clock start. So I asked why, and there was a very sensible reason. Back in the 60s, the 1960s, not in the 1860s like this church. <laughs> in this church, you have to go a lot further back. But in our church in, Glen, in, in Auckland and Glendower, you go back to the 1960s, and in Glendower and St. John's, there were two church plants, one minister. He would take the 9.30 service in Glendower and then shoot across to St. John's and do the 11 o'clock service. Makes sense, doesn't it? So in the late 60s, when they could both afford a minister, they decided, well, let's keep the 9.30 start. That's all very sensible, isn't it? Um, no, no big deal one way or the other. And fast forward some 40 years to the 2015 World Cup. How could we leverage this for Christ? Especially in our context in Glendowie when, when there was a vibrant mainly music and a Christian kindergarten at the back. And so we had these non-church families already involved. And so what we decided to do was to ask Sky and see if we could show the rugby matches live. So one of our elders rang, and to my amazement, Sky TV said, yes, you can show the rugby matches, and we made it clear that we weren't going to charge anyone an entrance fee, so they said, fine. I did ask the elder afterwards whether he rang up at 11 o'clock at night and got the cleaner, because <laughs> I still couldn't believe that Sky commercial operation was so generous. So anyway, we targeted the games and we set our lounge up and we, and we invited folk from the mainly music and from the Christian kindergarten and our folk and we beanbags at the front and the big screen and it was a lot of fun and we had a barbecue and families came. It was a really lovely mix until the semi-finals. And the timing 
of that meant that it was going to clash with our 9.30 start. You couldn't do both. Because in a smaller church, the lounge was right next. You know, it's just not going to work. So how, how are we going to do this? To me, it was a choice between witnessing, okay, and sharing our faith and a tradition of the elders. Really, isn't it? You know, between building relationship with non-church folk and inviting them to an alpha or, you know, even to a church service, and we compare that with an arbitrary time that made sense 50 years ago. And can you guess the reaction from the congregation? when we announced that for that one Sunday we were going to move from a 9.30 start to a 10 o'clock start. Can you imagine? You know, there was not one word of criticism, not one word of fuss, which really impressed me. As the pastor, I was expecting some pushback. And fair enough, that's something that you need to talk about as a church. Anyway, so with the rest is history. You know, we moved the service. Uh, we, the All Blacks won, and all was right with the world. And you know, over the years where we did that with our light party, which was targeting that group, uh, we had a, um, a Father's Day breakfast, you know, and all sorts of things. We, we had at least half a dozen families that were non-church families and who came to church and came to faith over a long... You know, it took a while. But anyway, th- those were the results. Now, I could tell you a story about the pews, changing from wooden pews to seats like that, uh, but the scars are still a little bit deep. That was, that was another issue. But again, I mean, at the end of the day, that was all about traditions of men, wasn't it? It's, you know, um, and that's just normal in a church to have those debates. But I think that's a good example that helps us just to understand what we're talking about here. There are some things, many things, which are good and right and proper. They give a richness and a rhythm and a sense of vitality to our faith, but they are preferences and traditions that work in our context, but they should never be held above the word of God. And really that's what today is about. How do we work with the word of God? How do we handle it rightly? How can we be like Timothy 2.15 that we do not need to be ashamed but we correctly handle the word of truth? So in summary, briefly, remember the snakes? Don't base major beliefs or core doctrines on a single verse, especially the second half of Mark 16:18, if you've got your Bibles there and happen to look it up, the first half of Mark 16:18 says believers will be able to pick up snakes and not be harmed. The second half says that believers will be able to drink poison and not be harmed. Now, how many churches do you know have vials of poison at the front so anyone who has an anointing can take it? That church wouldn't last very long, would it? <laughs> So anyway, humour aside though, uh, all of us have a tendency to pick something up in the Bible and then run with it and bring it out of proportion. When we do, we mishandle the word of God. And the second thing is to recognise that the traditions and the customs that we have, many of them, these guidelines, help us to worship and live out our faith. They allow for creativity, cultural diversity and rich expressions of our faith. But only as we keep them as guidelines subservient to God's word and never let the traditions become on par or like the Pharisees above the word of God. And finally, the Pharisees did not corner the market on being hypocrites. Many of the Pharisees were well-meaning, sincere folk who wanted to do the right thing. But look where it got them. They rejected the Son of God. And we also need to guard against the spirit of hypocrisy 
that it doesn't take root in our lives or in the life of this church. And the good news is, is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, then his mercy and his love will guide us and we will find our hearts are close to God. Not like the Pharisees who heart, Jesus said, your hearts are far from God. But as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we are drawn into his love, as we imagine and think through what he did on the cross for us in his resurrection, then our hearts will be softened, not only to Christ, but also to each other. His mercy will flow and guide us, and our ways will be marked by love, acceptance and forgiveness for each other and for those he brings in our lives. Let's pray.